From teenage gangsters to college exams, I am Matt Lambertson, and this is the Well Actually Podcast. Good morning, or afternoon, or whatever time of day it might be, wherever and whenever you happen to be listening to this episode. I'd just like to say thank you so much to everyone out there who can afford to listen to me for just under one hour each week. And actually, on that note, before I roll right into some new content, which I'm sure you're eager to hear, I'd like to address the elephant in the room. I know what you all must be thinking. Why didn't I post a new episode last week? What happened? If you recall, a few weeks back, on episode 6, I believe it was, I mentioned how important it was for me to put out new content each and every week. I wanted to keep that up. How it was important that I maintain continuity one episode a week. That was the goal. And of course, not even a month after saying that, I break the pattern. I miss a week, which is unfortunate and pretty ironic too. Really bit myself in the you-know-what with that one. But wait, I can explain. Well, kinda. See, the thing is that I just didn't have the time. Honestly, that's a common excuse, but honestly, I really didn't have all that much time. If you remember, during my opening segment from episode 7, when I was talking all about money and currency, I mentioned that I have yet to monetize this podcast in any way. At this point, I'm simply putting out content because I enjoy doing it. And that while I hope to grow the podcast to get sponsors, produce visual content. Let me tell you, I have all sorts of plans. But for right now, I've got a few other priorities. The podcast is basically at the bottom of the totem pole. I have work and school mainly, not to mention my familial responsibilities, my religious obligations as well. So I budget my time accordingly so that I can excel in school, so that I can work and fulfill each of those other responsibilities. So this past week was especially busy for me, and I'll get to why in a moment. But I was really busy. I mean, sheesh. So instead of rushing last week's episode and putting out subpar content, or even if I were to blow off my other obligations and put out a good episode, that would set a bad, bad precedent. Either way, I definitely don't want to get into the habit where my school and work suffer just for this podcast, or where I let the podcast diminish in the, in the in the quality, you know? So, okay, you're probably thinking, sounds reasonable. But why exactly was I so busy? The million-dollar question. Well, my answer's pretty underwhelming, to be frank. I just had a lot of exams last week. That was it. Just a lot of tests. Three, to be precise. And a fourth one this week. And tests aren't usually all that easy, which is obvious enough. If you've ever taken a test in your life, which you all have, probably hundreds, maybe thousands at this point, Eh, hundreds, definitely. Actually, quick math. Let's say you start taking real tests, whatever that means, in first grade. Coloring doesn't count, so real tests. And we'll assume that if you've at least finished high school, that means you have 12 school years, right? First grade through 12th grade. And you have, on average, like five or six or seven different classes or subjects a year. I'll be conservative and I'll say five classes. 
because gym class don't count and all that. So that means you have five classes for 12 years, which is 60 different classes, right? Yeah. And then let's say that for each class, you have at least two exams a semester, so four in a year, minimum, and that's a pretty low estimate. So that's four tests for 60 classes. So that's 240 tests, a low, low, low estimate. And that doesn't even include standardized testing, like the, you know, SAT. It doesn't include your driver's test or AP exams. And if you go to college, that number only goes way up, up, up. So, the short answer is, you take a lot of tests in your life. A lot. And depending on the subject area, some tests are, like, near impossible. But that isn't the only thing that can make a test hard. No. When you take a test, you're not just trying to learn the material. You're trying to figure out the test. And really, you're trying to figure out the professor, too. How they might grade the test. Or what questions they like to ask. There's really a lot to consider. And you got to deal with all of it. And deal with it well. Otherwise, your grade, obviously, will suffer. And that's never good. Now, an ideal test is one that is unambiguous. A test where you know what sorts of questions the professor likes to ask, where you know how your answers will be graded, where the directions and answer choices are clear and straightforward, where all you have to deal with is the subject matter itself. It's easier to focus that way, and it really tests your knowledge. But as you all know, most exams are ambiguous, unclear, and do the opposite of everything I just described. And that is never a good thing. If you're having to spend any longer than a few seconds trying to figure out what the heck the professor is trying to ask, you're already at a disadvantage. This sort of phenomenon is most severe when you're getting ready to take your first test in a new class. When you don't really know what to expect. When you have a new teacher who you're just getting to know, who you haven't quite figured out yet. And that's even assuming that you'll be able to. So you come in for that first exam, and you're terrified on the inside. Hopefully you've studied. But let's be honest, unless your teacher has been super duper explicit about what's going to be on the test, and how everything's going to be set up, and all that, you really can't take anything for granted. Even if a teacher has been that upfront, you still just have to wait and see. In college, this sort of thing happens all the time where you have a new professor, you spend a month or two learning about the material and doing a few assignments here or there, but when it comes time to have your first exam, you start to panic. You have little to no clue what the test is going to be like. And in college especially, tests are often weighted much, much heavier than they are in high school, and especially middle school. Like, two or three tests in college will determine half your grade, at least, sometimes way more. So that first test is worth a lot just on its own. You don't want to mess it up. And I had three of those last week. My first three exams for three different classes. So I skipped recording a podcast this time around. And instead, I put in as much time as I could to make sure I did well on those exams. Which I did, by the way, but that's aside from the point. No, but what I'm really trying to get at is, number one, if you're a student... You take a lot of tests. We did the math. Number two, tests are important. 
because grades are important. And number three, tests, especially the first ones, can be unnecessarily difficult, even if the material itself isn't all that challenging. And why is that? Well, me and my lists, I've set aside three common issues that I have with tests. You know, the sorts of things that distract from the main purpose of the test, which is to test your knowledge in a subject, and also your ability to use that knowledge to solve problems. If every one of these three issues were resolved, test-taking would be much less stressful, and it'd be much easier to plan around them. To know how much time you need to study, and whether you can record a podcast or not. So, here's the first grievance I have with tests and the teachers who make them. Number one. Unnecessary time constraints. Those are the worst. When a teacher throws in that extra obstacle. When a test becomes a race against time. Instead of it being a test of what you've learned, it becomes an exercise in how quickly you can recall what you've learned. That's just annoying, and frankly, unhelpful. Does it really matter whether or not I can fill out a unit circle in less than a minute? Or is it more important that I actually know how to use that circle to solve actual math problems? And yes, I understand that some time constraints are necessary. It's not like teachers are able to give you as long as you want to complete an exam. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the unnecessary time constraints. Emphasis on the unnecessary. When they give you an arbitrary amount of time to answer every last question. And it's usually not that much time compared to the actual workload that you have to complete. And then these teachers, they often try to justify these time constraints. They give the same old spiel about how if you really know the material, you'll have more time than you need. The key word being really. Like, I still have no idea what it means to really know whether or not I've learned something. Or some teachers, they'll break it down for you. They're all like, students, there are 75 multiple choice questions on this exam, and you have one hour to complete it. So that means you have 48 seconds to answer each question. Let me check my math. Okay, yeah, 48 seconds, which is more than you think. But I suggest that if you are stuck on a question to mark it, and come back to it later. Like, thanks for that little piece of advice. As if that's going to make up for the fact that you wrote 75 multiple choice questions and gave me only one hour to do it all. It's not like you could have wrote, I don't know, 45 questions instead, and still given me an hour to get it done. Would have saved you a lot of effort, I'm sure. But no. And during these marathon tests, when you're moving through the material as fast as you can, one of two things can happen, and this is usually the case. Either you get a cramp in your head from staring so intently at the paper in front of you, you get that tunnel vision, or you get a cramp in your hand, right in that thumb area, because you're writing away as furiously as you can. And at that point, you're fighting cramps just to finish the darn test. I wonder if some teachers just revel in all this. Seeing their students all frantic and panicky, walking around the room to get a sense of the palpable nervousness. And that actually brings me to my next grievance, which is exam proctoring. Yes, when teachers observe you when you're taking an exam, when you're trying to remember when the War of 1812 was, and you feel like someone is staring at you. 
Or maybe you have one of those teachers who's actually got a squeaky desk chair, and they won't stop fidgeting. Or maybe you have one of those teachers who continuously walks around the classroom, snake-style, in and out of your peripheral vision. And the list goes on. There are plenty of things that a teacher can do to be distracting. Honestly, how hard is it to just sit at your desk and work on something? And yeah, sure, they walk around the class to see if you're cheating, I guess, is, is the rationale. But cheating isn't that hard to spot. Come on. But really, teachers apparently love to be distracting. And yeah, I know, it's, it's not intentional. Teachers aren't trying to be distracting. At least I'd hope not. But it doesn't make it any less distracting. Or how about this? Have you ever had a teacher walk around the room and then randomly make an announcement to the class like, they give you an irrelevant time update. 22 minutes left, class! And it scares the bejesus out of you because they're like right by you and they scream it basically because it's been dead silent. Or have you ever had a teacher who's been walking up and down every aisle, like I mentioned, and then they might stop and glance over your shoulder for a second, and then they announce to the class, make sure you read the questions carefully. And then you're thinking in your head, hold up, is Miss Smith talking about me? I mean, she just looked at me, she was looking at my paper, and then she gives this innocuous piece of advice. And then from that point on, you start to second-guess every question. And that's assuming that the test questions are even written well. Which brings me to my third and final grievance. And that is, you guessed it, poorly worded questions. This happens way too frequently. Half the time, when I'm taking a test, I'm honestly trying to decipher what the heck the professor is really, really trying to ask. Some teachers actually do this really well. They write good, clear, and concise questions that allow you to demonstrate what you've learned. And other teachers, it's rough. It's beyond rough. I feel like math teachers especially, I'm not trying to single anyone out, but math teachers especially write pretty awful questions. Usually because they use bad grammar. And some teachers like writing ambiguous questions. So when they're grading your test, at least this is my opinion, they can have all the leeway they want. It's uber subjective, just how they like it. Because if you have a problem with the grade you received, and you try to point to a question you missed, the teacher can turn around and say, well, this is what I meant, you, you see. This is what the question was asking. How sneaky. Or sometimes the questions will be clear, but the answer choices are a bit ambiguous themselves. Like if two answer choices are similar, or actually if two answers are both correct in their own way, or if the answers provided are all opinions, not facts, just opinions. Or how about when you get one of those questions that gives you A, B, and C, and then the fourth option is both A and B, and option five is both B and C, and option six is all of the above. And option seven, none of the above. Like, what's even going on? That's less of a question and more of a riddle. Like, even if you know what the question is asking, and even if you know the answer, you're screwed. So here's my overall advice for all those test makers out there, and for the teachers who hand out those exams. Don't make the test a race against time. Let the content be the driving force between a good grade and a bad one, not the clock. Also, if you're proctoring an exam, don't be distracting. Don't fidget. Don't give your students any reason to lose focus. Just be respectful. 
And lastly, make sure that every single test question is clear and concise and has clear and concise answer choices. Please. It'd make the test-taking thing a whole lot less stressful for everyone. Now, with all that test-taking nonsense aside, I'd like to announce a very special return of sorts. This episode marks the return of a fan-favorite segment, my book review. And if you recall from the earliest days of the podcast, this segment is geared towards breaking down everything wrong with the books that I was forced to read in school. From middle school to high school, mainly. And sure, I'm fair. I highlight the good parts of each book as well. Though there aren't that many, let me tell you. But let's be honest, it's much more fun to pick apart every little issue I have with these books. So, without further ado, I'm proud to say that I've selected a real doozy of a book this week. The book I've decided to tear apart, <laughs> figuratively, is a popular young adult novel from the 60s that you might have read at some point, probably back in middle school, maybe early on in high school. I read this book when I was in 7th grade, and the book I'm referring to is The Outsiders. Not The Insiders, The Outsiders. And it's written by Susan Hinton, who actually goes by her pen name of S.E. Hinton. Which is about the most interesting thing about the book, really. That in the title, The Outsiders. I kind of like that. But now, the story on the other hand, the prose and all that, eh, not quite my cup of tea. So, as is common practice, I think it'd be best if I ran through the plot of the book real quick, giving my take on the characters and the events of the book before getting into the real nitty-gritty of the issues I have with this nightmarish teenage fantasy. Actually, before I get into the plot, I'd like to say that Hinton, the author, she was only 16 years old when she started writing this book, and it was published when she was only 18. So that's quite an accomplishment, regardless of how awful the book may or may not be, okay? But yeah, she was a teenager writing this. So, you can understand why the writing kind of sounds like a high schooler could have written it. It's a bit juvenile. It borrows heavily from other works, pretty derivative, not that original or sophisticated. But hey, published at 18, way to go! It's not like I have much room to talk. I don't have a book published yet. And I'm 20! So, kudos to her. Anyways, here's the plot. And actually, I'll start with a quote here. The first line of the book begins like this. When I stepped out into the bright sunlight from the darkness of the movie house, I only had two things on my mind. Paul Newman and a ride home. I'll just let that resonate for a second. Now, before I get into the Paul Newman bit, or why that first line is going to be key for later on in the book, it's important that I identify the I in question. You know, who is the speaker? So this book is written in the first person. You figure that out, I'm sure. And it is therefore narrated by somebody. And that somebody is a 14-year-old greaser named Ponyboy... Curtis. Yes, his name is Ponyboy. Not to be confused with Shark Boy, and he has a twin sister named Pony Girl. No, I'm kidding. That actually might have made the book better. But I'll get into all my issues with the character names later on. Alrighty? So much to unpack. So, where was I? Uh, 
Yes, we have a teenage kid named Ponyboy. Actually, before I go on, I have to do my best horse impersonation. I promise this is real. Alrighty? That's uh that's that's probably gonna get cut out. But anyways, we have we have Ponyboy, who's the narrator of our story. So we get his perspective. And the story begins as Ponyboy is leaving a movie theater. And the first thing we get to know about Ponyboy is that he is infatuated, apparently, with Paul Newman, a real-life famous actor who starred in tons and tons of films. So the assumption is that Ponyboy was watching one of Paul Newman's movies, which got him thinking about his good looks and how Ponyboy wishes he looked like Paul Newman, or something. Which isn't all that hard to imagine. A teenager wanting to look like a movie star. Sounds about right. So what have we learned so far? Uh, Aside from the fact that our teenage narrator likes movies and Paul Newman, well, we've learned that Ponyboy is part of the Greaser gang, just like John Travolta from Greece, which is the word. But in the world of The Outsiders, which is set in Tulsa, Oklahoma, by the way, what exactly does it mean to be a greaser? According to Ponyboy, it means wearing your hair long and putting grease in it. That's about it. If you're relatively poor, you have long hair, you essentially meet the qualifications. Haircuts? Who needs those? Unless, of course, you are a soch, which is short for the socials, who are the wealthy, upper-class, west-side, pretentious types. They are the greasers' rival gang. Sound familiar? Two rival gangs, one rich, one poor. Hello, West Side Story, which is a play based on Romeo and Juliet, which is a play based on the tragical history of Romeo and Juliet, because apparently everything is based on something else. So, with all that in mind, it's not surprising that the Greasers, who we're supposed to side with, by the way, they're the good guys, mostly, though it's not quite that simple, of course. Anyways, with the threat of the Soches out there, the Greasers take a stick-together approach. And that brings me to the next thing we've already learned. Ponyboy needs a ride home. Yep, movie's over, and Ponyboy is only 14. So no car, not even a bike, and since he went to the movie theater by himself, he has two choices. Walk, or find a phone booth and call for one of his buddies to pick him up. And you can guess which option he picks. He obviously decides to walk when he could have easily called somebody. Because, and I quote, Sometimes I don't use my head. Oh, and Ponyboy says he likes to walk, too. Which is reassuring. It's not like him walking home alone is a ridiculous plot device contrived in order to set up what's obviously going to happen next. Because when I'm reading this, I'm thinking to myself, Ponyboy is absolutely going to be jumped by a soch. Guaranteed. I give it a few pages. But before I even get into that, I just want to emphasize how ridiculous it is that Ponyboy doesn't call for a ride. He knows plenty of people. He's just mentioned his two brothers. His oldest brother, Derry, who is 20. And his other older brother, Soda Pop. Yes, again, his name is Soda Pop. And I have no idea why. And get this. He goes by Soda. That's his nickname. And there is certainly some interesting stuff mixed in here. While Ponyboy narrates about his family, we learn that both his parents have recently died in a car crash, which is sad. Also boring. 
If I had a nickel every time I read a book or watched a movie about an orphan, or about someone who doesn't have any parents, or someone who's lost at least one of their parents, people are, just, people are obsessed with parentless heroes. It's remarkable. And there'll be more on parents later. But all this really means, in the book that is, is that Derry, who is 20 years old, is acting as the de facto guardian for his two younger brothers. So there's bound to be issues there. Foreshadowing. And back to the walking home alone garbage. Ponyboy mentions how he could have asked a number of other greasers to come get him. But no. Instead, he walks alone. And I've already spoiled it. He gets jumped by a couple of Soches in cringeworthy fashion. For whatever reason, the Soches are beyond obsessed with Ponyboy's hair. With, with Greaser's hair, really. They keep repeating the same thing to him. They're all like, Hey, let's give you a haircut. Which to me doesn't seem like a punishment, right? I, I mean, hey, free haircut. Thank you, sir. But it's awfully sinister. These guys start to circle around Ponyboy. Like they're trying to tame a horse. <laughs> One of them says the following. Hey, Grease. We're going to do you a favor, Greaser. We're going to cut off all that long, greasy hair. And you know, when I first read that, I thought to myself, Wow, brilliant prose. Not. Also, I really would be interested to know how many times the word grease, or greaser, or greasy is used throughout the entire book. It's got to be at least a thousand times. I myself have already said the word greaser like 20 times already. And we're not even through the first chapter. Anyways, the socias start to beat up Ponyboy. And then someone pulls a knife, and they're just going to kill this 14-year-old kid, apparently, who hasn't said a word, mind you. So he eventually starts to scream for his life, thank goodness. And his brother, Derry, comes to save him. Because I think we're supposed to assume that Ponyboy had almost finished his walk home. Either that or his brother just came out of nowhere. Again, the, the details are kind of hazy. Seems like another convenient plot device. But that's just me. Anywho, Ponyboy is safe. So next time he goes out to the movies, he brings company. He goes to a drive-in the following night. Because what else is there to do but watch movies? But not really watch them. Just kind of watch them. Just, it's fun to be there while they're playing. Anyway, so Ponyboy goes to this drive-in with two of his greaser friends. One named Dally. Not Dairy. Dally. I know it's confusing. It's not like the author could have picked literally any other name in the English language that didn't sound or look like Derry. But no. Two main characters, Derry Dally, both important, both not to be confused. So Ponyboy goes with Dally, who's the roughest greaser of them all, and a shy, quiet greaser named Johnny, who Dally actually cares a lot about. Johnny's a good kid, kind of like Ponyboy. They don't do traditional greaser things, except for the whole put grease in your hair thing. Now, what's strange about this night at the movies is that after the three of them had snuck into the drive-in, because of course they didn't pay, they didn't even bring a car, even though it's a drive-in. Emphasis on the drive. But Ponyboy and his two buddies are at the drive-in, chillin', and apparently nobody else is there except for a couple of Soch girls, Cherry and Marcy. And Dally, being all gruff and tough, starts to flirt with the girls, and he's being all weird and rude, and he eventually leaves because the girls are like, hey, get out of here. And quiet Johnny, he actually stands up to Dally, who's basically his idol, so go Johnny. Johnny's like, hey, 
Get out of here, man. We don't want you here. And then Ponyboy and Johnny talk to the two girls. And Ponyboy likes Cherry, who is a cheerleader. Of course she is a cheerleader. Saw that one coming. And Cherry is all like, Ponyboy, you don't belong with the greasers. But Ponyboy's like, hey, sure I do. And he tells Cherry about how the Socias beat up Johnny a few months back. It was, it was bad. But Cherry assures Ponyboy that not all Socias are like the ones who beat up Johnny. Yada yada yada, class conflict. Eventually, the movie ends. And Ponyboy and Johnny, along with one of their other friends, 2-Bit, who showed up out of nowhere, they start to walk Cherry and Marcy home. So at this point, this book has been about three things. Grease, movies, and walking. Great stuff. And of course, Ponyboy and his buddies and the girls are intercepted by Cherry's boyfriend, Bob, who drives a blue Mustang. Sweet ride. Because of course she has a punk boyfriend. The nice cheerleader. A punk boyfriend. Perfect match. It always happens. And there's almost a confrontation there. Bob's pretty vehement. He's upset. It's not like Bob had originally gone to the drive-in with Cherry and then got drunk with his buddies and left. Oh wait, that is what happened. But thank goodness for Cherry, who calms everybody down and leaves with Bob. Good job, Cherry. Defuse the situation. However, after all the shenanigans with Bob and co, Ponyboy gets home really late, like 2 a.m. Somehow. I, I don't know where the time went, but he gets home late. I'm really not sure how it got that late, but okay. Past his bedtime for sure. And Derry, his older brother, is angry. Obviously. But he takes things way too far. He actually hits Ponyboy right across the face. Because parenting is just too much for him. And Ponyboy understandably runs out of the house. That makes sense. But this is where things just start to go awry, to say the least. Ponyboy meets up with Johnny, and they walk and talk. And Ponyboy is pretty shaken. But while they walk and talk, they're cornered. Oh no! It's Bob and a group of other socias. Because apparently everybody is up at 2 a.m. Just come and practice. So Bob tries to drown Ponyboy in a nearby fountain. Ugh. And then Johnny springs into action, and he stabs Bob with a switchblade, because I guess Johnny has a switchblade. So Bob dies, and both the greasers and the socias freak out and run away. Because Johnny just stabbed a soch. That's crazy. Ponyboy and Johnny, they go find Dally. They're like, what do we do? Johnny just killed a guy. And Dally, like, is, is unfazed, and he gives them a bunch of cash. $50, actually, which is like over 400 bucks in today's money, which is ridiculous. There's no way Dally had that much money to spare, unless he's got, like, gold bars buried in his backyard, or a piggy bank that he's been saving up for since he was two years old. So Dally, he gives them all this money, I guess, and he also gives the boys a loaded gun, because apparently Johnny's switchblade didn't already do enough damage. A gun is the answer. So he sends the two boys off to hide out from the cops and the other socias in an abandoned church in Windricksville. So they train hop to get there. And the boys hang out in the church, smoking a little bit here or there. Actually, both Ponyboy and Johnny cut and dye their hair. Like, what? A greaser would never! And Johnny has a copy of Gone with the Wind, so Ponyboy starts to read it to him. Because, uh, oh yeah, I haven't mentioned this yet. This is important. 
Ponyboy likes to read. He likes books. He likes English. Hint, hint. And Ponyboy also recites a poem by Robert Frost called Nothing Gold Can Stay. Great poem. A classic. And I'll actually recite it briefly here since it's a short poem. So it reads, Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold. Her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief. So dawn goes down to day, nothing gold can stay. Which is just a great poem. Again, Robert Frost, terrific, terrific poet. And that poem actually kind of really sums up the book. It's, it's the main theme, or kind of the counter, to our main character in his journey, in a sense. I won't spoil exactly how it works in just yet. But anyways, after hiding out for a while, Dally comes back to let Ponyboy and Johnny know how bad things have gotten back home. How Bob's death has sent the town into all-out war. Whatever that means. And they chit-chat for a while at the local Dairy Queen, getting a blizzard or something. Because Sue doesn't like ice cream. And I guess they don't have to hide anymore. And eventually, out of guilt and perhaps a bit of bravery, Johnny decides that he wants to turn himself in to the police. To end all the craziness back home if he can. So the three leave Windricksville. And as they head home in Dally's car, no more walking, they drive past the church. And that's when they realize that the church is on fire. I guess we're supposed to assume that maybe one of the boys started the fire accidentally with a cigarette butt that they just disposed of. But who cares? The church is abandoned, right? It makes sense that it could catch fire. It's run down. But no one's even close to it. It's abandoned. Remember? Wrong. Forget everything you thought you knew. There are a bunch of school kids having a picnic on the church grounds. Yep. Another plot device. And it gets worse. Some kids, of course, wandered off inside the church. And then the church catches on fire. And now you have kids on fire. So Ponyboy, Dally, and Johnny all run inside to save the kids. They got hearts of gold. Emphasis on the gold. So they save the kids, just in case you, the reader, were questioning whether they were the good guys. But Ponyboy and Dally are somewhat injured. They get some burns, some smoke inhalation. But Johnny, he's hurt pretty badly. Things aren't looking good at all. Part of the roof fell on him. It hit him in his back. He broke it, apparently. His back is broken. I mean, that's just not good. Now, on a positive note, Johnny and Ponyboy are praised as heroes. That's nice. Woo! Gold star. But the police are still going to charge Johnny for manslaughter. Because he kind of stabbed Bob. And the Greasers and the Soches are still pretty upset at one another. So like any good rivalry, the two sides set up a little get-together. A final rumble. And at this rumble, it's basically going to be a big brawl. Like a football game without a football. Everyone's going to be there. People will get hurt. Some people might die. It's supposed to be this big epic event. Like the end of Avengers Endgame. And so, the rumble happens. People get hurt. Even Ponyboy gets a concussion. But the greasers pull out the win. Which is supposed to be a good thing? I think? It's kind of hard to tell. 
It's really just a bunch of guys fighting and then we're supposed to feel good about it? I, I really don't know. Meanwhile, Johnny's in critical condition and he passes away right after the rumble. Just as Dally and Ponyboy got there to check in on him. Dally goes berserk. He cared about the kids so much. So he goes and robs a store and points an unloaded gun at the police to basically ensure his death, you know, to commit suicide. Because they're forced to shoot him. And I'm not exactly sure what the precise police protocol was then, or even what it is now, really. But apparently disarming the kid was off the table. Okay. So they're forced to shoot him, and Dally dies, which is sad. And then we get a lot of falling action, and, you know, Ponyboy, he, he's on trial for Bob's death, I guess. And he isn't held responsible for it, obviously, because it's not like he did anything wrong. I mean, the kid was getting drowned, and someone else stabbed Bob, so I really don't think we had much to worry about there. But there is something wrong. Ponyboy, he's missed a lot of school, right? Because all this has happened in school, who cares about school? So we were like, oh, okay, Ponyboy missed a lot of school, makes sense. So he's failing, classes, all over the place. I mean, yeah, he spent a week, a week, in a thought-to-be-abandoned church, just hiding out. Just, you know, while school was going on. So, upon his return to school, after his concussions all healed up and everything, Ponyboy's English teacher, especially, pulls him aside and tells him that in order to pass her class, Ponyboy has to write her a paper. An essay. And if you recall, Ponyboy likes English and books. So, by chance... He's thinking about what to write. He looks back at Johnny's copy of Gone with the Wind, and he finds a note inside. Of course there's a note inside. And it's from Johnny, who's just who just died. And advice from dead people is apparently good. Right, that's that's how every book treats the situation. Yes, his death is sad, but now he's a philosopher. So in the note, Johnny tells Pony Boy to keep his grades up to do all that good stuff, to not get caught up in the violence. And he sums that up and, and says, Stay gold, pony boy. Stay gold. Take that, Robert Frost. Because in the poem we said, Oh, nothing can stay gold. And, you know, essentially that's pony boy and he's going to get sucked into this world of gang violence and everything. But Johnny's like, No, you can stay gold. You can stay pure somehow. Stay gold. And with that little bit of heartbreaking wisdom, pony boy decides to write his essay on the recent events he's been a part of. And there's the big reveal. We see the opening line of the book once again. You know, the whole thing about Paul Newman? So basically, the big revelation is that Ponyboy wrote The Outsiders. He's not just the narrator. He's also the author. Whoa! What a twist! Now, let me tell you what's wrong with that little switcheroo. How the heck did Ponyboy have enough time to write a book that is almost 50,000 words long? and hand it in to his English teacher for a glorified extra credit assignment. First of all, there's no way he could possibly write that much in time. There's no way he could get that done. And, and, there's no way his teacher would even bother reading that much. And to be frank, I'm not even sure he'd get a good grade on that paper if she did. But that's not the only issue I have with the book. Yeah, the ending stinks. It's contrived and forced uninteresting, gimmicky. But there are other big issues that I'd like to highlight real quick. Number one, the plot is not realistic. It's trying to be realistic. The author says it's realistic. It even smells realistic. But it's not. 
and I have one question that'll make that just plainly clear as day. Where are the parents? Where are they? Seriously, where are parents? I guess Hinton explains away the lack of parents for Ponyboy and his brothers with the whole car crash thing, and she does her best to explain away all the other greasers' parents, like Johnny. Hinton describes his parents as abusive and neglectful, and Dally's parents just don't care about him at all. They're out of the picture, so he's on his own. And to me, that's all convenient narrative gobbledygook. See, if you eliminate everybody's parents, one way or another, you can justify everything that happens in this book. Simple as that. Anybody can miss school whenever they want, they can be out whenever they want, they can do whatever they want, but come on now. Basically, in order to believe that any of this gang stuff could happen in real life, to the extent that it happens in the book, you have to buy into this ridiculous idea that parents are just nowhere to be found. At all. And I'm not saying that you gotta have parents involved in the main story, but the plot is structured as if parents are irrelevant. As if the mere presence of a single responsible adult would destroy the entire narrative. Which it would. Which is why this book is unrealistic. You don't just have a bunch of parentless kids out there. This ain't an orphanage. And yes, I understand that we're talking about the 60s, and kids definitely had more independence, they had to fend for themselves a lot. But without any sign of parents, there are literally no practical limitations to keep the story realistic. Even take Derry, for instance, who operates as a de facto parent. When Ponyboy is out super late, like past 2 a.m., and then Ponyboy finally gets home and Derry flips out because it's so late. Like, if that was such a big issue, why didn't Derry just go out and look for him? To call around? To bring him home? I find myself asking those questions far too often. Now, the second thing that makes this book insufferable are the names. Oh, the names. I've already alluded to this, but here's a list. Just in case you forgot, Ponyboy... Soda Pop, Cherry, and the whole Dairy Dally thing. There's literally a moment when Ponyboy is all like, I hope Cherry doesn't laugh at me when I tell her my name. <laughs> and the weird names aren't ever explained. Ponyboy's like, yeah, I, I had creative parents. You can check the birth certificate. Like, basically the worst explanation anyone could ever give. And the last thing that I just can't stand about this book are the ridiculous plot devices. The burning church that was abandoned, but then not abandoned. The fact that Ponyboy doesn't just call for a ride at the beginning of the book. Dally's small fortune. The dead parents. The ending. It's all just convenient plot movement to get from point A to point B, with little explanation and little character development. It's all pretty unfortunate. No, no part of the book really makes that much of an impact, you know? It doesn't resonate. After reading this book way back when, essentially the only thing I remember is grease, greasers, and more grease. Now, plenty of schools have kept this book out of their curriculums because of the teenage gang violence, the drinking, the smoking, and all that. It's actually a pretty frequently challenged book, I guess because people think it glorifies the violence. And maybe it does. But frankly, that's irrelevant. I don't think it matters. For all the reasons I've already mentioned, The Outsiders isn't all that interesting. It's not a good book, in my humble opinion. And while I like the title, 
And I really respect the fact that Hinton wrote this book when she was only in high school. If I'm to be purely honest, I really don't think this book should be read in school. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Well Actually Podcast. Tune in next week for new content available on this podcast channel.